Well, let me say good morning also. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, my name is Steve Zeisler, and uh, I started attending here in 1967 as a freshman in college. And they've not managed to get rid of me since, so I have a long tenure, lots of memories, and it's great to see so many old friends and be reminded, you know, notes have come in and Facebook postings and all of what God's done here over the years. This is a wonderful occasion to look back, but also to, uh, as the uh, Cho said, look forward um, to what's coming next. This is, um, the lampstand is in place, the light is uh, upon it, and we're looking forward to what uh, new things will come. So I'm going to do, uh, start out though, <clears throat> with uh, the nostalgic committee asked me to tell a Ray Steadman story as a start. Uh, so I'm going to do that. As was mentioned, Ray was the first employee of Peninsula Bible Fellowship. It took him a while to figure out they were a church, but eventually he was called pastor of the church instead of director of the fellowship or whatever the first thing was. Um, he was a remarkable influence on a whole generation of church leaders, all over the world, actually. Um, and he probably best known other places and, and even here for his leadership of um, a time in the 70s when there was a revival happening, uh, revival happening here, but all over the nation, and, and in fact, all over the world. There was a movement of the Spirit. People were coming to Christ. There was new life everywhere, and, and a lot of it was chaotic, and un, you know, people didn't know what to do, and Ray gave a lot of leadership, again, every, and other places to sort of root, uh, putting um, sort of biblical categories on what the Lord was doing, help people think about how the scriptures informed what was going on. And um, here at PBC, there was uh, the gatherings in those days, the early 70s, were jam-packed. There were new believers who grew in, grew in faith, fell in love with the scriptures, wrote new music. It was a time of joyful overflow and spirit-led craziness. Um, Ray died in 1992. Uh, he was a rare combination of authority humility, and integrity, <clears throat> and he was a father figure to me. Uh, I owe an enormous debt to his friendship and his mentoring of me, um, and the story I want to tell you is about uh, an occasion when uh, we were on a study, it was 1974, I think, but there was a group of us that went to study in the, in the Holy Land, and we were in Jerusalem, <clears throat> and um, that day we, I, I was very young, had never been there before, didn't know, what I, you know anything, and we were supposed to go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which the group went, and I put on shorts to go out that day because it was hot, and we got to the church, and they said I couldn't go in because there was a dress code, and you had to have long pants on. So I stood outside, everybody else went in, and Ray had been there before, so he came out sort of quickly afterwards, he said, come here. So we went around, kind of around the corner, he said, let's change pants. So right out kind of in the courtyard behind a rock, we're, we're switching pants. And, and he's the one in the white shirt, by the way. And uh, you can see he's sort of swimming in the shorts that I was wearing that day. And there I am wearing his pants that come nowhere near the top of my shoes. But, um, but I got to go into the church. Uh, and uh, that's, that's my favorite Ray Steadman picture. There. The... Uh, the place we are 
here in Palo Alto has been the same for 75 years. People have come and gone, generations have changed, but we're called somehow to this place, this part of the world. And of course, the world around the church has changed immensely. It used to be a place, 75 years ago, a place of apricot orchards. Now it's a place that fosters um, artificial intelligence and who knows what else. Um, but all the while we've been here, we've had sort of the same assignment, uh, to be the people of God. Not many wise, according to worldly standards, not many powerful, not many of noble birth, but have gathered here, gathered to worship and grow in faith, challenging the claim that life is found in wealth and influence that cannot satisfy and do not laugh. We're an outpost for something different in, in this place that has become so powerful and important to the rest of the world. <clears throat> Next week, we're going to start a series of uh, messages here and, and efforts to equip us to answer questions that those outside the faith are asking. Again, to call us to, to represent the Lord in a place that's in many ways hostile to faith. How can we answer the questions that are being asked? But I want to propose that underneath the questions, we listen also for the cries of help. Because as this century moves on and, and again, changes not only in the church but in the world, there's a growing sense of malaise and loss and sorrow, it seems to me. And even people that think they don't want to know anything about the Lord are um, suffering. Uh, you know the, the um, reporting. <clears throat> Epidemic loneliness, deadly natural disasters, political division and violence, rising rates of suicide and other deaths of despair, surrounded by tall, shiny structures that even secular observers know are built on sand. Um, there's a quote from an essay written by a journalist named David Brooks that I want to read from uh, that, I, again, I think helps articulate the world that people without Christ are um, living in and what we have to offer can perhaps uh, come out of a sense of the cries for help that we are like this. Let me read the, from the Brooks essay. <clears throat> you know, um, vulnerable narcissists are common figures in our day. People who are addicted to thinking about themselves but often feel anxious, insecure, avoidant, intensely sensitive to rejection... They scan for hints of disrespect. Their self-esteem is wildly in flux. Their uncertainty about their inner worth triggers cycles of distrust, shame, and hostility. The breakdown of an enduring moral framework will always introduce disconnection, an alienation, and an estrangement from those around you, Luke Bretherton, a theologian at Duke Divinity School, once told me. The result is the kind of sadness I see in the people around. Young adults I know are spiraling, leaving school, moving from one mental health facility to another. After a talk I gave at, at, in Oklahoma, a woman asked me, what do you do when you no longer want to be alive? I want to say that again. It's kind of an awkward phrasing in some way, but it's heartbreaking. Some woman comes up to a lecturer in some lecture hall in Oklahoma what do you do when you no longer want to be alive? Uh, it's a haunting question. And I think 
by far the best answer comes from the voice of Jesus. And I want to read um, this self-description of him found in Luke 19. <clears throat> the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. What do you do when you don't want to be alive? The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He came as a, on a rescue mission for those whose hope is ebbing away and have nowhere else to turn. And, and yet, I, again, his... I think we will do well to consider his statement, not only as the mission, the rescue mission he's come for, but also to ask, where did he come from? What was the Savior's journey? And who are the lost? What does it mean to be lost? If we can come to grips with those, I think it will help us be able to engage with people in our world and people we know, people we're surrounded by, who are deep in a hurtful place. So the first question uh, is, where did the Savior come from? What was the Savior's journey? So if you were, we were to ask, we might say, well, he came from Galilee. That's true. Uh, he came from the line of David. He's the heir of the throne of, of Israel. That's true. He came as the fulfillment of the prophetic scriptures of, of Messiah. That's true. That's where he came from. But none of those go back far enough. Where he came from ultimately was the um, unbroken fellowship of the Trinity. Paul puts it this way in Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Where did he come from, this, suffer, this uh, uh, son of man who has come to seek and to save the lost? How far did his journey go? What, what did it cost him? He turned from the eternal embrace of the Father and the Spirit. He emptied himself. He humbled himself became obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is an unfathomable, uh, costly love that, um, that he, he, the journey he undertook is one of unfathomable and costly love. He came for people who don't know what to do, people who don't want to be alive, people who don't know how to ask the questions, people who don't know how to articulate their need. He came for people who don't even know themselves well enough to know what he has to offer. He could not have paid a bigger price. There is no love like this. Nowhere, nowhere else is there love like this. And, and for those who are anticipating death or maybe even beckoning death, he says, I've come to give life and to give it in abundance. Um, this is the Savior's journey. This is the extent to which he has uh, spent himself so that we can have life. And the, um, we, we, we serve this Lord. We, we take up his, his message to give away to those around us. What do you do when you no longer want to be alive? Might uh, take a 
a line from a country, the old country song, let somebody love you before it's too late. And he comes with uh, a message of love that is unequal. But the other thing that we, or the other question we want to ask from his, his word about himself and his, his uh, mission is who are the lost? Who did he come for? Who? And the lost, of course, are, are all of us. There is none who is not lost. There's none who ha- does not have need for the saving love of Jesus. But not everybody knows it. Not everybody has agreed. Not everybody has seen themselves clearly. Not everybody is uh, articulate about what's wrong with them and, do- and knows their lostness. And I, we're going to go back into the context in Luke and, and read where this statement came from. And I think there's some lessons for us there about what it means to be lost. <clears throat> He's, Jesus said at one point, those who are sick don't need a physician, but only, I mean, those who are well don't need a physician, but only those who are sick. And I've come for the sick. But of course, those who are well are only those who don't know they're sick. And so we're going to learn some lessons about the lost by going back into the text in Luke where this, this passage comes from. A little bit of context first. Luke 18 and 19 are the final chapters in Luke's story of Jesus that, and, that lead up to the triumphal entry and the end of his journey. He is on the verge, in the text we're going to read in a moment, on the verge of going to Jerusalem to be, put, to be uh, executed on a cross. He's at the end of that, that process. He, the very next thing that occurs is the triumphal entry, the very next thing that occurs in this story. We also know that Jericho, where the events uh, we read, are going to read of take place, is on a road that is one of the main roads into Jerusalem from east to west. It's a road where travelers who come to Jerusalem would be going, and the time of these events is Passover. So that on the Jericho road up to Jerusalem are travelers from all over the place coming to worship at Passover, Jews coming to worship, Jews in good standing, Jews whose religion is... is um, being lived out as it ought to be. And they're, going on, they're traveling on this road and they've knotted them, they've, uh, a knot of them have gathered around Jesus and he's walking along teaching. And so there's a crowd. They're, 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 these are a crowd of uh, Passover pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem. We're going to look at two stories. One of a blind man named Bartimaeus. We know his name from Mark's gospel. He's not named here, uh, but his name is Bartimaeus. The second is of a man named Zacchaeus. And uh, scholars, uh, many of them think that the reason these men are named in these stories is because they were later part of the early church and were known to people who were reading these gospels and and are now um, known to them and therefore included by name in this story. One is destitute, one is wealthy, both are lost. And um, let me uh, take up the first story in uh, Luke 18.35. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing the crowd go by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front of him rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. 
And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. You will not have difficulty picturing, I think, a beggar who is disabled, trying to survive by calling for alms. This kind of life has been lived in every place in the world, in every era of history. You drive out of Costco in Mountain View and you'll see this scene, at least some version of it. It's, uh, it's hard. It's, uh, it's a terrible way to live and, and, and survive. But in addition to being hard, just physically hard, in, in the case of blindness of, uh, in the first century, in the time of Jesus, there was a um, judgment was attached to the condition. You're blind and miserable and begging, but on some level, it's your fault. We know from John's gospel that the disciples asked him once about a man who had been born blind. Whose sin caused this? And it's a difficult question because if you're born blind, how can you have sinned prenatally? How can you be judged for something you did? And so maybe it's his parents who, but in any case, the question is not how did he come to be blind? It's whose fault is it? Because it's somebody's fault and God has judged this man. So here sits Bartimaeus begging. He's, he's not an easy beggar to be around. He's kind of loud, insistent. That's not unfamiliar to us as well either, is it? And the travelers around Christ, walking to Jerusalem, are listening to a sort of a celebrity, um, a provocative celebrity who works miracles, who shakes up things. It's kind of interesting, and, they, and maybe the occasional you know, thing he says is worth paying attention to, but mostly they're just traveling together and listening, and they're, they're not showing evidence of, of being persuaded at a deep level by what he's saying. The thing they do, however, is form a barrier to Bartimaeus. He cannot speak to Jesus, he cannot approach Jesus, because the people who are pilgrims, who are doing the right thing, who are well regarded in their religion, they're in the way. And we might let that observation ask us a question too. How, how often, as we're going about the things that we think God has called us to, do we end up being in the way of some who are hoping to know the Lord? who are wishing for more from him? It's a hard question. I think it's one that we ought to ask and, and ask for answers to from the Lord. The, uh, the phrasing of, of addressing Jesus is also interesting. The, the people in, in the crowd called him Jesus of Nazareth. He's passing by, which is accurate. But the, the blind man had heard stories of Jesus of Nazareth and had concluded that he was not only a rabbi from the north, but that he was something much greater. And when he addresses Jesus, he calls him Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. He's recognizing that he has come from God, that he is in fact the Messiah, that he, he can uh, bring this man into in the presence of God, can, can minister God's uh, healing to him. And, and he is the only one that uses that in this story that speaks to Jesus in that term. The Lord answers, asks him a question that's kind of a surprise question too. What do you want me to do for you? 
Well, it should be obvious that if someone's by the side of the road begging, what he wants is alms. He wants charity. And that could have been the answer, but this man does not want charity from Jesus. He said, Lord, I want to see. Let me recover my sight. And Jesus performs a miracle, and that's accomplished. What happens next is also worth taking note of. The man who had been yelling and objecting and trying to uh, you know, get the crowd to shut up so he could talk, the man who was uh, sort of voicing his, 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 his anger, his objection, his refusal to be sidelined and marginalized, that man's voice becomes a voice of praise. Immediately, he recovered his sight, glorifying God, and the people who were with him began to praise God as well. The lost one who had been found and redeemed and changed and given life by Jesus became a worship leader. He became one whose praise was, uh, had the effect of leading all those in, that, in this immediate circle to begin to praise and glorify God as well. Newcomers to faith enliven congregations. Those who've come in from a far place, who didn't know the stuff before, who are for the first time hearing of the love of God, who are touched by the Spirit in new ways, they become effective worship leaders if we let them. They, they express truth that, that is commonplace, perhaps, to us. They see things in a new way. They revive congregations when, when those new in faith, those who are newly grateful, are part of our new, uh, inner circles like ours. Well, there's a second story of the Son of Man coming to seek the lost, and that is, uh, it starts in chapter 19. This is a man who is uh, rich, powerful, and empty, not poor and by the side of the road, someone who has all this world stuff and wishes he hadn't. Verse 19, uh, chapter 1. <clears throat> he, Jesus, entered Jericho. This is probably the same day, actually. He spoke to Bartimaeus just outside Jericho. Now he, the group has traveled a, few, a short ways into the town of Jericho. Um, he's um, entered Jericho, and he, there was a man, behold, a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he was seeking to see Jesus, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up the sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up to him and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they grumbled. He has come in to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. The son of man has come to seek and save the lost. Rome, the uh, Roman conquering of the world, uh, had a few ways they went about things. Rome was intensely cruel and violent and idolatrous. They had uh, conquered the region, uh, Palestine, where uh, the people of God, uh, 
city of Jerusalem and their territory. And what they did when they conquered a place was to find someone who was willing to be a traitor, someone who knew their community, who knew who had money and who didn't, who knew that the poor old widow down the street actually had a lot of stuff in the back that she wasn't telling anybody about. And so in order for them to be effective in gathering taxes, they would hire somebody in town who would work for them and effectively make them better at um, their uh, kind of violent conquest, their violent uh, takeover of the country. And Zacchaeus was that traitor. He was wealthy. He made... Uh, not only did he collect taxes, he collected more than enough and kept it for himself and so on. So that's the kind of work tax collectors did and they were hated because they were traitors to their own people. He's another man called a sinner by those in the crowd and the crowd once again is a barrier to Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus cannot get near Jesus because the religious crowd, the good people are in his way. Some commentators have speculated, you know, why was Zacchaeus the way he was? We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But sometimes men who are small in stature, as it says, who get picked last for the teams on the playground, who get overlooked by the girls in resentment for how they were treated, um, turn and uh, look for payback. It's possible that that, he, he was greedy almost certainly, because he did what he did for money. But these choices, whether it's payback, whether it's greed, whether whatever, whatever the other motive is, he'd come to a place where he was desperate uh, to be a new man. Uh, he had all he needed, the, uh, the wealth, the power, the riches, the, the authority to make things happen, and yet he was miserable. <clears throat> And so uh, Jesus does quite a remarkable thing here as well. In the case of the blind man, he did a physical miracle that changed everything. In this case, he said, I want to go to your house. I want to treat you with respect. I want to have table fellowship with you. I want to uh, see you as a person, not as just a category. I, I realize how broken you are, how lost you are. I've come to see the Son of Man's came to seek and save the lost. And, and Zacchaeus, in his condition, was as lost as anyone. Loving, acceptance, a welcome to one's home, having a meal with outsiders, putting our arms around folks who others don't want anything to do with is transformative. It's what we can be about as the church, welcoming those that feel like they'd be rejected and have been rejected by folks like us. Bartimaeus became a leader of worship, giving glory to God and others could as well. Zacchaeus, in a way, becomes a leader, uh, an example of discipleship. Having been embraced by Jesus and changed by Jesus, he starts to give away what he has. He starts to do the, you know, take care of people he wouldn't have otherwise. He gives back what is stolen. He uh, takes from his wealth and is going to give it to others. He's uh, he just spontaneously, without any effort, he's changed and becomes a disciple who, whose choices can be emulated. So what do we do with all this? This journey of the Savior who came 
from the embrace of Father and Spirit and died on a cross, who loved the world we live in so much, people like us so much, this Savior who undertook a journey to seek and to save the lost. What do, what do we do with thinking about the lost as others and then thinking about the lost as ourselves? We, can't, we are not able to affect anybody's change, life change for Jesus' sake. We, we, we don't do anything to bring that about. But we serve a Lord who does. And we can see the people around us the way he sees them. We can see the beggar. We can see the lonely, rich, broken, proud around us. We can see folks who are, have needs of all kinds. And, and not just kind of keep going on our, our way, but we, we, we can offer them what we have. We don't change them ourselves, but we can at least see them the way our Lord sees them. We know people like Bartimaeus and Zacchaeus. Their, uh, their counterparts are everywhere around us. We can ask hard questions about how many barriers we're putting up. Is there st- something about the way we do things that has made it harder for people who we, we don't care for much to, to find their way to Christ? Um, I think the most important lesson of this, this Jesus self-disclosure, that he is the seeker, one who's come to seek and save the lost, is that we are the lost. <clears throat> as we see other people come to faith, as we see renewal and healing and uh, openness to change, as we, as we see God moving in the lives of other people in the church and out, we can, sort of, we can recognize, as the hymn says, how prone to wander we are, prone to leave the God we love, prone to pride and foolishness, prone to self-righteousness, prone, prone to give way to fear. We, as we have opportunity to know Christ that we have turned from, we come to a place that's unhealthy and, and, and we don't know where to turn. The Son of Man comes to seek and to save us as well. He doesn't leave us there. He he doesn't expect us to find him. He comes to find us. I think the... uh, Something I've learned by growing old that I would not have known uh, so much a a long time ago is... um, the sense of being, if not lost spiritually, displaced in the world. I used to feel like a competent adult, that I kind of knew my way around, you could do stuff, you, you know, the ideas and the, uh, the uh, whatever, culture or politics or whatever in the world, I was least aware of them, technology wasn't too big a deal, but it, eventually as you get old, you're, just, you're displaced, you no longer belong in the world you live in. Next year, Stanford University football is going to play in the Atlantic Coast Conference. <laughs> I, I don't belong in this world anymore. You know, I, I, seriously, there's a sense of everything has changed. So that um, it's, if not lost, it's displaced. And who will come for the old folks? Who will come for us in, in needs like that? Um, he, Jesus does. He seeks and saves and rescues and embraces and cares for the lost 
We have a message for the world. We have a message for our own hearts. Probably the most impactful piece of Christian music in English in the last, whatever, 150 years is, um, is the song Amazing Grace. It's, uh, it's beloved almost universally. I, I've been at, in memorial services where it's sung at the end, and I've seen people I know have no faith in, or no, profess no faith in Christ move to tears as the song is sung. I know people with awful, sinful baggage who uh, speak of uh, a wretch like me being saved, and, and it, they mean every word of it as they look back on their life. I've seen people who've lived with tremendous moral rectitude and done almost nothing wrong that anyone can see in tears because he saved a wretch like me. This, this sense of the seeking Savior who's come for the lost, I think is profoundly uh, told to us in the song Amazing Grace. The lonely bagpipe on the hill playing this melody, and it just, you know, it's, the words kind of penetrate as we, we hear and say and sing this. So we're going to finish today by singing, um, I once was lost, maybe like Zacchaeus, maybe like me. I once was blind, maybe like Bartimaeus, and in other ways. But the Savior came for me, and now I see. Let's, uh, let's sing together.